We have quite a task before us this morning in terms of trying to get something out of these three texts, not because it's hard to find something, it's because there's too much there to find. And I really want to make sure we get a good solid dose of that Psalm 18 or Second uh, Samuel 22, however you want to think of it. Psalm 18 is easier to remember. But I don't want to leave behind the other texts either, which are, are significant. And I'm going to go right at the, the worst one, I guess. It's not bad. It's just very easy to misunderstand. So that's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It's just the last verse in the reading. And the challenge has to do with the way you hear the word temptation when I say it. Now, I've been saying this all morning and since last night, and no one's contradicted me on this yet, but feel free to try. I'm pretty confident there is no positive use of the word temptation in English. There's no such thing. If I'm tempted by chocolate, it's because chocolate's bad, right? It's a very negative word. But the word in Greek that is here and elsewhere in the Bible used quite a bit that can mean temptation, which is bad, does not only mean temptation, which is bad. It can also mean a test. Now, of course, if you are familiar with tests like you take at school, multiple choice, you think that's bad too, but it's a different kind of bad, I think you'll admit. But that's not really the kind of test we're talking about either here. We're talking about it when you test yourself to see how good you are at something. You try to beat your own personal best. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Or let's say you need to put something on trial, not a person for a crime. You're going to buy a new car. So you test drive three cars. Well, does that mean there's something negative about the cars? No, you're just trying to find out what the one you really want is. One other way you could translate this word, it is my favorite, is the word temper. And it is connected to when you lose your temper, but it actually has nothing to do with your head and has everything to do with metal. And when you want to make something out of metal and make it good, you got to get the bad metal, the weaker metal, the dross out. The way you do that is you heat it and you hit it and you heat it and you hit it and you cool it and you heat it and you hit it. It's called tempering. And over the course of time, not only does it purify the metal, it strengthens the metal and makes it good for what it's supposed to be good for. That's the word that's right here in this text, okay? So I'm going to read it again and read it with the word tempering thrown in and then try to explain that because now instead of telling you how you can live without sin and crushing your conscience by saying no to temptation, it's going to tell you what to do when you find yourself in temptation, which is a much better thing than thinking get out of it without sin. I'll come back to that. All right, so just reading verse 13 here. No tempering has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not temper you beyond your ability. That is, he's not going to break you. He will not let you be tempted by, tempered beyond your ability, but with the tempering will also provide, now it says, what, four words, the way of escape. It's one word in Greek, exit. He will provide the exit. With the tempering of your metal as he purifies you, he will bring you through it. That's what it says. Not how you have to find a way to be sinless every time you're tested, but instead that when you're tested, you know you're going to come through it. Now, this is the key to, in fact, saying no to temptation. Let me show you how, okay? What happens when you're tempted? You're somewhere, something happens, and you want something. That's temptation. I, it doesn't even matter what it is I want, it's evil in some way. I'm angry for an unjust cause. I'm angry for a just cause, but I'm still a son of Adam, so I'm going to be a jerk when I tell you about it. It doesn't matter. The point is, I'm aroused already. The moment temptation has happened, I'm already a sinner. So there's no way that God's going to provide a way for me to get out of it without sin. Quite the opposite. What he wants is for me to see my sin 
and say, that's sin. I'm bad. And the only way you can do that is if you know you're already bought in Jesus, so it doesn't matter. And the moment you've done that before you've acted, you haven't done it to them. You've only done it to yourself, and Jesus says, I got you. That's Christianity. Not this nonsense, pietistic stuff about how I'm going to get better and better and leave behind pain. No, the cross and trial of tribulation, living according to the word of God in this life, will temper your metal so that when you rise from the dead, it won't be a joke. It won't be a joke. It already starts now with your mind. And that's the tempering he's talking about. Now, there's a lot of warning that goes on before this in 1 Corinthians 10 here that we're not going to spend much time on, but it's, it's worth it. There are three stories that Paul uses to explain how the Old Testament history is not nonsense or just some moral tales. It's a reality that took place that we should learn from. And the primary thing he wants us to learn from it in today's text is that if you are a Christian, you can still throw it all away. And if you are a Christian congregation, church body, whatever, you can still shipwreck your faith and your confession. How? Well, that's why you got to look at the actual stories. Every time it's the same, God says A, we say B. Just like that. Every single time, three stories. At Mount Sinai, God's given out the Ten Commandments, amongst which just one of them is marriage should be respected and kept pure. Meanwhile, down at the bottom of the mountain, underneath the fire and all the crazy cloud that's going on, they decided to have a sex party. I don't know what they were thinking. It's what they did. And 23,000 of them got killed that day by God. These were people who were saved out of Egypt. They'd gone through the Red Sea as on dry land. They sang hallelujah for salvation. And then what? And don't ever miss that the golden calf that they were worshiping was called Yahweh, the Lord. It was called Jesus in their language. They worshiped Jesus, but he was a false Christ. Paul says, watch out for this. Two more coming. The other one, don't put Christ to the test and be destroyed by serpents. Do you remember this? This is a pretty simple one. They've just been brought out of Egypt, and all they do is complain that they're hungry. That's all they do. <laughs> Reminds me, I'm going to tell a little out-of-school story here, but we were with the Woolleries on the Maze last night, and my son walked by, <laughs> and he, he, I don't know what he was doing. He, where are you, Fides? I don't know what you were doing. He was swinging his arm around, and he hit me in the side of the head or inside of the shoulder. It, it hit me. I'm talking to Pastor May, who's my friend from Africa, right? We've only got a couple hours for this. I get hit in the side of the head by my son. And I smiled, and I looked at him, and I looked at James. I said, now, in my culture, we normally kill them for that. But since you're here, I'm going to be hospitable. <laughs> but but there's, there's something to this here, too. That when we complain, I'm hungry, I'm bored, I'm tired, I'm a whiner is what you are. I'm not strong is what you are. Maybe you don't have a God is what you are. Now that's what Paul wants us to consider here. Is not where you are at this moment where God has put you? Yes. Is not God good? Yes. Is it not a gift then? Yes. But it hurts. I don't care. It's a good gift to do what? To again, temper your faith to believe his word over and against what you see. So the day when you're about to die, the devil comes knocking and says, you've never been good enough. You say, get out of here. Give me my pastor, bring me the Lord's Supper. I'm ready to go in peace. That faith grows from knowing the danger of putting Christ to the test and knowing the grace I stand in all along. One more, if you thought that was bad, those two things that they did. The other story, I had to go look this one up, and I'm not sure this is guaranteed to be the reference point of what were destroyed by the destroyer. It's a little bit of a, 
not, fishy is the wrong word, not commonly used language. It's not a technical term for another story that I can tell. But what it seems to be referring to is this. You remember, they get brought out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They go up through Moab. There's some issues there, but it works out pretty well. They're about to go into Jordan. They send 12 guys in. They all come back. 10 were bad and two were good, right? 10 of them say, don't go up there. Big giants, two say, Joshua, Caleb, we should go. God said so. As soon as everyone decides to listen to the 10 other guys and not go, God says, well, I guess you're never going in then. You're going to go out in the desert and you're going to stay there till you die. Your kids, though, if you have any, will go in. So have some kids, wait in the desert. What did they do? Well, it says they repented, but they didn't. They didn't say, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for not burning us, but instead sending us into a desert to temper us that we might tell our children what you're about to do for them as you bring them into the promised land. They didn't do that. They said, oh, we'll go into the promised land now. We promise we'll be good. And then they went. And they tried to fight their way in. And God fought against them with the Amalekites, driving them out. That's being destroyed by the destroyer. When you think you're fighting for God and God's fighting against you, how does that happen? Every single way along the way, God says, A, we say B. How does it not happen? God says, A, we say A. God says, yes, we say yes. God says, no, we say no. And boom, it's really very straightforward. Life springs from the grave in the person of Jesus into you, into your mouth and your heart and your mind, and then into your life. Not as a thing you achieve, but as the outpouring of the God who's so good that even our evil can't stop him. There's so much more. That's just 1 Corinthians 10. Luke 16, the parable of the dishonest steward is not by itself in the Bible. It's in a long string of stories. And all of these stories are in response to the Pharisees being a bit discontent with one thing Jesus was doing. He was eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, that means one thing to us, like, ooh, IRS, okay. But that's not really that bad. It is, but it isn't. Prostitutes, that's bad. They're bad people. But what's being missed by us is how this ties to their religion. Because for them, how they eat, who they ate with, when they cleaned their hands afterwards, had everything to do with whether or not they were righteous in God's sight. And the Pharisees think that you have to do it just like this or else. And Jesus, who is righteousness in God's sight, they're accusing him of not being righteous. And he tells a bunch of stories in response to this. He says the parable of the lost sheep. I know I don't have to tell that one to you, right? He talks about the parable of the lost coin. It's like a copy of the lost sheep a little bit. He tells the parable of the lost sons or the prodigal son, as you might know, but there's two sons and one ends up lost still at the end. Then he tells this parable of the shrewd manager. Then he'll talk about it at the end of our text, something that's in the middle of a bunch of more stories that are going to come because the Pharisees ridicule him. So he starts to talk about divorce. He tells the story of rich man and Lazarus. And he talks about how you can have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown to the sea. And it's better than living the way the Pharisees live. And believing what the Pharisees believe. He then describes what the true servant of God looks like. And he's talking about himself. He turns around and there's 10 lepers and he cleanses them all. And only one is thankful. You know some of that, right? Okay, so in the middle of all of that, the very center of that is this story about the dishonest manager that everybody comes to and goes, I don't know about this one. This doesn't make any sense. doesn't seem like the rest of them. It seems kind of weird. And it has to do with verse 8. And verse 8, I think, is a riddle. I think it's intentionally a riddle. It's meant to be obscure, whereas what follows is not obscure at all, but everyone wants to hang up on the obscurity. We like the unclear passages because we think we can make something up there. The clear passages bore us because they just tell us what the truth is. It's the way our flesh works. 
all the same then. So verse 8, the master commends this guy who's been stealing from him. Why? Is it because Jesus thinks we should steal from people? Well, that's a pretty dumb answer. No, it can't be that. So then why? Does it mean Jesus thinks what he did was good? And that's where you got to stop right away. No. He never says that he commends the dishonest manager, only that this other guy, his master does, and he calls them both sons of this world. Sons of this world. What's that even mean? Sons of this age. It means unbeliever is what it means. It means they don't know the true God even if they think so is what it means. And it means then the doctrine that we sometimes call original sin applies to them. We've forgotten this and we need to remember it. All men are born liars. If you are not redeemed to know the true God, you have no incentive whatsoever to tell the truth other than that to protect yourself. Which leads to any conflict with somebody else being one that must lead to more conflict as you protect yourself from them. That is the mind of sinful man. Born liars all, born tricksters all. How do we stand against that reality when the rest of the world knows this and is okay with it? And again, that's the point of the riddle. So this, this master with money has some guy stealing from him. The guy is fired. The guy steals some more, but ends up making a lot of money for himself in the process. He comes in for his last day on the job, and instead of a pink slip, the guy says, I'm promoting you. Not because I trust you. I don't trust you. I'll never trust you. But I know what you can do now. And then Jesus says, because sinful men know how to deceive and use each other. They plan to do it. They think about doing it. It's all they do. You Christians, sons of light, redeemed, are innocent in one way that they are not. You don't see it coming. You forget. You believe everyone's inspired of the Spirit as you are to be honest people, to even desire to be honest people. That's the point here. That's the point. Evil men know what they're doing. We tend to forget. And then where it's as clear as daylight, verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. This does not mean you can use your money to buy Christians or make Christians or just because you give your money to the church it makes God happy with you. But it does mean, it does mean that everything that you see on this entire planet is going to burn in holy, purifying fire until it is a crispy, fiery mess, except for you and your children and those who are far off and those who are near, all whom our Lord Jesus Christ will call unto himself. Since you know that, ought your use of this stuff be just a tad different than those who think the games of one-upmanship is really what it's all about? If you want to be faithful in much, you want your faith to grow, be faithful in a little. When your pastor says, read the Bible, do it. When your pastor says, say the Lord's Prayer at home, do it. You'll be faithful in more later. Not by what you did, but because the word poured into you will not stop being the wellspring of life that it is. And it will burst forth from you as a confession of hope in the face of all your fears and death. But not if you never read it. Not if you never memorize it. Not if you think it's just like the TV. It's not going to help you. And you're, just, you're just being a patsy at that point. You want to be faithful in much, be faithful in little. And know that if you're dishonest in a little, it's quite a telltale sign, isn't it now? And if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Now, I don't know. I'm pretty confident, again, this whole section is about, look, it's going to burn. So act like it's going to burn. Take care of it. It's a gift from God, but don't act like you can hold on to it. I think that's just the point. And if Christians 
when we, I shouldn't say if, when Christians pay attention to this and remember that we're different from the world and we don't need to hold on to this stuff, but in fact, it's all going to be restored a hundredfold in the life to come, it makes it a little easier for us to do stuff together. We can let some of those things that we get so frustrated by in our personal lives slip and slide because we see a bigger agenda, which is to tell people that he has risen from the dead and that nothing can change this. That that means that you're paid for now and nothing can change this, that you can't die now. And nothing can change this, that he's not going to be long now, and nothing can change this. That the water of your baptism has sealed you in this, and nothing can change this, and that this meal is going to feed you with more of it, and nothing can change this. And that's Christianity. And frankly, Christianity, whoever you are, wherever you are, we've been a little quiet. A little quiet. We need to distrust princes more. We need to confess that our king's alive more. I could give you more about God and mammon. I think it speaks for itself. Verse 13 at the end, again, summarizing the whole thing. Whose team are you on is the question. Whose team are you on? Now, let me pause there for a second. Aren't you a bunch of Christians here? Aren't you on Jesus' team? Well, yes, of course you are. That's the promise he's given you in your baptism. Then why should you ask, am I on Jesus' team? Because you got this trouble. You are a perfectly righteous, eternally alive human being stuck inside of a completely disastrous, sinful, wretched human being. You can flip it. It's the same way the other way. You are a disastrous, wretched, sinful human being stuck inside a righteous human being who's never going to die. <laughs> I, I like that one because it means my old man's getting left behind in the grave, whether I like it or not, whether he likes it or not. I like it just fine. But what it means is then again, when you come to the fight to pursue your own understanding of your faith, it can only crush you, but the crushing is the victory because as I stand worthless in God's sight, Christ stands vindicating me all the way. So that again, when I come to that moment of temptation for the 15th or the 30th or the 490th time of this thing that I'm tired of facing, I still come into it not alone, but with the baptism that is the crucifixion of Christ around my neck. And I don't mean this piece of jewelry. I mean the fact that I can't die. Now, you know this because it's been promised to you, and yet when you come to this, you must always question it as well. Are you in the faith? Am I in the faith? What's your answer? The point is not to question it and not have an answer. The point is to question and say, of course I'm in the faith. A mighty fortress is my God, a trusty shield and weapon. But again, if you don't have anything memorized, you can't fight back when the lies come. So, with not nearly enough time to even give it justice. If you don't mind trying to find your way to Psalm 18, my challenge to you today, I'm not going to teach on the whole psalm. It's way too much, 50 verses. But we're going to view over the top of this thing. And my challenge to you today is to pick one verse. Just one. There's 50. Plenty to choose from. One verse. And I don't want you to memorize it word for word. I don't. I want you to Figure out what it means for you, and I want you to turn it into a prayer. I'll give you an example right off the bat directly from our text. I've been using it all week. I'm not very good at this one. There's some others I've gotten into my blood faster than this, but I want this one more. It was in the reading, um, excuse me, I'm on the wrong page here. In the reading from 2 Samuel, it's verse 29. It reads like this, you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. What I've been saying is, Jesus is my lamp, my God, who, who illuminates, lightens, my darkness. 
I've been trying by having a little card to memorize that all week and just say it to myself as often as I can. Why? Because I want to remember when I'm in despair that Jesus is my lamp who illuminates my darkness as my God who won't let me die in my despair. That's why. I want those words to fight back. I want the gospel to be in me and not just something someone else talks about. So with that said, a bird's eye view of Psalm 18 or 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22 is almost the last thing written about David before his last words. He dies after giving a prophetic utterance that he, it's amazing. He's like, a prophecy. I swear it's a prophecy. One more time. This is a prophecy. He says like seven times. And then he says, from my lineage, from my throne will come the real king. Summarize. That's 23. Right before this, though, is this psalm, which is one of the only psalms that ends up in the history, certainly at this point. Why? Because it's likely a summary psalm for everything that David saw as a visionary of God throughout his lifetime. It's not that there aren't other things he said in the other Psalms, but you can bring all those themes swimming together into Psalm 18 as the capstone for David's messianic image. What do I mean by that? David, as the king, had had oil poured on his head. That's called anointing. The word for anointing in Hebrew is Mashiach. So one who has had oil poured on their head is a Mashiach, or you might know the word Messiah, which goes into Greek as Christos and comes then to us as Christ. So the moment we talk about David being king, we talk about him being the Christ. His throne is the Christ throne. His seed and lineage is the Christ seed and lineage. And of course, this all swells to completion in Jesus himself, the body born of Mary, being what David is really talking about. So the key thing then with Psalm 18 is from the beginning, it's all about David's kingdom. It's all about Jesus' kingdom. David's kingdom is an image, a shadow, a type, It is true. It is history, but he failed. Just remember Bathsheba. Jesus' kingdom is everything David's was and more. And all the language here can be turned and used to talk about what he has done for you and then again used as your prayers. Now, rather than read you every single verse, I'm going to give you some sections. So I, I felt guilty as I did this this morning, but I did it. This is my own personal hymnal I've owned for years, and I wrote it. I felt bad about it. But I, I made some marks where the sections are, and I want to encourage you to do the same in your Bible on a note card or, or in your hymnal in front of you. After verse, this is Psalm 18, after verse 3, there's a section break. So verses 1 through 3 are an introduction. Then after verse 6, there's another really fast section break. It's very short. That section is about the darkness of death. So you have an introduction, and you have a small section about the darkness of death. Then you have a very long section that runs from verse 7 to verse 24. And the word for this, it's a fancy theology word. I I don't know a good way to say it in English yet. It sounds like theology, but it's theophany. Theo, like the name, the boy, T-H-E-O, and then it's like epiphany. Put the end of epiphany on to theology. They smash them together, you have theophany. And it's a word that is trying to describe what it looks like when God shows up. When you see God, it's a theophany, right? Uh, it sounds pretty tame, right? You saw God is pretty much all it needs to say. Well, that's just it. So verses 7 through 24 is David's description of how he saw God. We'll come back to that. Then there's a section that starts our text that we heard read, which is this middle bit that's very poetic with the merciful you show yourself merciful right all that 
That seems to be about the identity of God himself. There's another place in scripture that's like this, where Moses asked to see God. He's not allowed to see God, but he's told God's name. And God says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, Joshua, Joshua, Jesus, Jesus, however you want to say it. I am merciful, steadfast. Like when he defines himself, when God defines himself, what is he? Love. That's what that section's about. And you have another longer section that starts at verse 28 and goes to verse 42. And this is, this is praise unto action. So David exalts God for what he's done and says, therefore, I'm going to and I know. It's the kind of thing like I was saying a moment ago to you, that you can live differently than the rest of the world because you know things they don't know with conviction. They might have heard about it and dismissed it, but you believe it to be true. So that's what David does here. And again, remember, this is sort of like his last will a little bit. Verses 43 to 45 is this marvelous little package that like you could spend forever on. It is David rejoicing that he's always been king, but more importantly, it's Jesus being the ultimate king. I'm going to read these to you right now. Think about it. Jesus on the cross, Jesus at his resurrection, delivered from strife with the peoples, made the head of the nations, peoples he had not known come to serve him. They hear of him and obey. Foreigners, that's us Gentiles, come crying to him. Foreigners, we lose heart and come trembling out of our fortresses as our walls and our lives and our attempts to build a righteous land for ourselves fall apart. We come to Christ just as he was prophesied long ago by David. That the king lifted up upon the cross draws all men to himself. The final section, 46 through the end, is just like that first three verses. It's like the summary or an antiphon or some bookends. And it again, summarizes the whole psalm. So now I am going to tell you verses one through three out loud because they are the summary of the whole psalm, right? And then again, verses 46 to 50 does that too. He says, I love you, Lord. O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Does that sound familiar, by the way? That's our theme verse for the year. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So everything else is that. Who is God? I called on God. He acted to save me. Now, that alone is worth memorizing. I call upon the Lord. He heard my cry. Right? He's worthy to be praised. Save me from my enemies. Verse 4, the problem. Right? 4 through 6 is the problem, the abyss, death. The cords of death encompassed me. Torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. It makes me laugh. Um, you know, there's Bible verses you put on basketball courts, and there's Bible verses you don't put on basketball courts. And this is one you don't put on basketball courts, right? The, the cords of death encompass me. Although I could think of a funny time to do it. It'd be great to put it like in the opponent's like free throw area or whatever. I think that'd be kind of funny. In any case, the point is, David experienced things in his life that put him to the wall. This is a guy who with a small band of men was running away from an army around a mountain with the army following him around the mountain, sleeping with his head on a rock. And he ends up greatest king in history, really, in terms of his name, the great king. So what did he face throughout that that God brought him through it? And how did he get there? From the start, it's because he believes God said, David, you're my king. Okie dokie. I guess I can fight Goliath now. I can't die since I'm going to be king. <laughs> Might as well take advantage of that. It's the kind of thinking we need, by the way. 
So he does that, but then you have all this stuff. You remember the story. Saul, the king before him, wants to kill him. After he becomes king, his son Absalom rebels and tries to kill him. He has to live as a madman, frothing at the mouth whenever he's in public amongst the Philistines so that he won't be killed by them. The guy was up against the wall again, constantly. That's that abyss part. Death was always his threat. It was never like it was easy for David. And then you have what God does. And here, I mean, golly. Why don't we have pictures of this? The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the mountains trembled. Smoke went from his nostrils, fire from his mouth, going coals flamed forth. He broke the heavens and came down, darkness beneath his feet, riding upon the throne on which all these cherubim that we have on our banners are that aren't there today. He comes upon their wings, darkness is covering a canopy around him, brightness before him, coals of fire, hailstones, thunder, the Most High's uttering voice, his arrows scattering people, flashing lightnings, the channels of the sea being rebuked. I mean, at what point do you stop listening? At what point do you not know how he can even go on anymore? What a picture. What a God. That's your God he's describing. He sent from on high, verse 16, took me out of many waters. That's that abyss. The whole point is what it said in verse 3. I called on him and he saved me. It doesn't matter if when David and his warriors went out to fight against the Philistines, God's armies shot lightning bolt arrows at them, or it was just the arrows of David's warriors and God was behind it all. It doesn't matter. We can argue about that. People do. But the point is, David was real. He called on God. God answered him. And you have the same war and the same God and the same footpath to follow. Not to run around a mountain from a guy with a sword, but to learn to cling to the word of God about who he is and how much he wants to save you, how he will burst out of heaven with wrath to save you. To believe that. To believe that's what happened in Christ. But that was an invasion, not a loss. And he won, <laughs> didn't lose. Because jumping way to that other section, right? Verse 25 to 27, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. It's not that what I do is what makes God who he is. However, when I refuse to believe that God is who he says who he is, now, however I imagine God, that's my God. I actually get that God, and he will beat the crap out of me because he's bad because I made him up. <laughs> that's the point here. So that you who have been shown mercy in Christ and know God is merciful can only expect to receive more mercy. But for the one who is twisted and comes doubting and questioning and skepticism in Christ, like the Pharisees did, right? I don't know about him, right? Not an honest question, a dishonest question. Well, they're going to get the God they ask for, a lying God who deceives them. They're going to come to parables, they're going to teach them, and they're going to go to Judgment Day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? And he's going to say, nope, he didn't. Why? Verse 25, they didn't know who he was, a God of mercy before all things. Now, again, we could dwell on that. The exaltation stuff that goes from 28 to 42 is huge. Huge. It was singing to God with praise. And that's where that verse that I like so much, it is my lamp. God is my lamp. My Lord who illuminates my darkness. This bit though, in like verse 29. So here's one of those verses you might put on the, the, the track and field field, right? For by you, I can run against a troop. And my, by my God, I can leap over a wall. That's track and field. Uh, except it's not. What's David talking about? Again, whether or not 
in battle with someone, he jumped 12 feet, or he only jumped six feet, but there was a stone there just in the right place for him to grab it and get over the wall, doesn't matter to me. The fact is he's confessing that wherever his feet went his entire life, win or lose, which is why you don't put it on a sports court to begin with, win or lose, he knew his feet were directed by God. And therefore, his feet could not go wrong. And again, I'm just here to tell you that's the promise you have for you. That's your life. Your feet are directed by God. Your feet cannot go wrong. Jesus says so. If from that you say, therefore, I'll never come back. I'm going to live however I want. Then you didn't believe me. <laughs> uh, and if you believe me, then you come back and you keep learning this word and it just gets stronger. It just gets more real. That new obedience that shows up from verses 37 to 42, where he's talking about pursuing his enemies, overtaking them, not turning back till they were consumed as the effeminate modern people we've become, we have trouble with that verse. He's singing about killing his enemies. How dare he? You ever had enemies try to kill you? Until you have, I, I suggest you just hold off on how you treat people that survive that kind of thing. I'm not going to say we should sing about killing Baptists or atheists or anything like that. But again, there was a reason he killed these enemies. These, these enemies were people who were trying to kill other people. <laughs> now, he protected the nation. That's one thing. But more than this, who's the real enemy? Was the enemy really Jezebel? Is the enemy really Gog? Who's the enemy? The enemy is the devil. The enemy is fallen humanity and therefore your own flesh. So if the new obedience we have in Christ rising from the dead in us brings us anything in this text, it's not that I'm going to go ahead and beat everybody else out there. It's that when I fight to believe in Jesus, this is the power God brings to the side that you will pursue and overtake. You will not be consumed by your sin the other way around. You will thrust it through so that it cannot rise. That's the promise. Does that mean you're going to live every day without sin? I already dealt with that this morning. No, you're a sinful being and a righteous being at the same time. You're going to be stuck with dealing with what that means. What does it mean? It means you can't lose because Jesus won already. If you want to be on your own, you'll lose. That's fine. Verse 43 to 45, that Christological exaltation, I already went through that a little bit. You know, that Jesus has been made the head of the peoples, delivered from the strife of human sin, and now all the nations, Jew, Gentile alike, are called to say, all lives matter. All lives are purchased in the blood of Jesus. All lives are not their own but belong now to holy God and all lives are declared free and clean and jubilee and pardoned. It's only a spoiled sport who could complain about that. Hmm. Let's feast on it. In the name of Jesus. Amen.